You know, time is a valuable thing, isn't it? It's very valuable. And we have less of it than we think. How many of you are about 30 years old, give or take a few years? Yeah, we have a chunk of you, chunk of you. Uh, so let's say you're 30 years old. You know how long you've slept? Eight years. So for those who are 60 plus and so on, well, you double that. Uh, so now you're down to 22 years of productivity. The average American spends about two years in 30 on travel. So commuting to work, vacation, errands, that kind of thing. So now you're down to 20 years of life that you can use. Uh, then you take your high school education. Take another three years at least off of that. Then take another two years off for the average American investment in entertainment. So that's, you know, video games, phone, TV, all that stuff. Now you're down to just 50 years of good time to use purposefully. We're all given 86,400 seconds every morning and there's no balance left over. At midnight, it resets and there's no getting it back. It seems to fly by the older I get. You know, Anna graduated just a couple weeks ago and my goodness, it seems like just yesterday, you know, she was like your little girl, Nick. You know, it just goes by so fast. And like little Julia, you know. It seems like just yesterday I was taking her to kindergarten. It says in James chapter 4, verse 14, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's just, it goes by so quick, doesn't it? And to get a little bit deeper, David says in Psalm 39, verse 4, he prays, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You've made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. So even those who seem like they have it all together, and they're somehow politically or financially or socially or intellectually or athletically influential. That man, it just goes by like that. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. So we need to be taught by the Holy Spirit, how short life is or will waste it on dumb YouTube videos and Netflix. That's human nature. Now, uh, this generation gets a lot of criticism because they're told they waste time. Every generation wastes time. It's our nature. We naturally do it. It's part of our fallen nature. It's just a question of what we waste it on. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work in us to lift us out of our selfish desires and our wastefulness with this precious resource of time. We need a miraculous work, don't we? We all do. We naturally want to use our time on ourselves. So let's pray this together, this psalm together. Lord, just like David in Psalm 39, we pray that you would teach us to number our days or that you would show us the end of our days, that you would show us how to live purposefully, that you would put a salt in our mouths that cause us to thirst to live life on purpose for your kingdom's sake. Lord, that we would not waste a moment, that we would not be lulled in to the relative wealth and ease that our culture offers, that we wouldn't drown our eyes on a big screen TV or an iPhone, but rather, Lord, we would pour over your scripture and that our, our hearts and eyes would look towards the ends of the earth to make you known at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families, 
and around the world. Teach us, Lord, please teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Time is valuable to God, and it should be valuable to us. We should care how we use it because it's the primary way we worship God. How we use our time is our worship. I think we all could agree with that. God wants to get glory for our time, from our time. And when God gets glory from our time, here's what happens. We get pleasure because our greatest pleasure comes when we give God glory. That's how we live life the way it was intended to be lived all along is by bringing him glory. And that's why the enemy of our soul relentlessly assaults us, trying to get us to cheat God out of the time that he gave us. He tries to make us think that somehow if we give God our time, it'll be boring or it'll suck the life out of us. Somehow we, we won't be genuine or authentic if we spend our time with God, that we should spend it on ourselves. That's where real joy is found. That's why Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. That is, if you allow the Holy Spirit to push you past that selfish desire to use time on me, myself, and I, and use it on him, we'll find life. We'll find life. We're called to not be unaware of Satan's schemes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, and we see how the enemy attempts to steal our time in Ephesians 5, verse 15. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. We're called to make the most of our time because the days are evil. In other words, our day in, day out monotony of life, we're so used to it, it's like a, you know, the frog in boiling water. We don't see that the enemy of our souls seeks to, to motivate us to water down our time for our time just to become dissipated in a million different things that don't really matter. He wants to make us useless to God. But we'll be held accountable for how we use our time, this side of heaven. Did you know that? We will be held accountable for every minute. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So this judgment seat is not the judgment by which God will determine our eternal destiny. This is the judgment for believers that determines our rewards or lack thereof. Did you know that? We will be rewarded for what we do. We will receive rewards or the lack thereof for what we do while in the body. David Jeremiah, pastor and writer David Jeremiah, reminds us in his book, the things that matter, a living a life of purpose until Christ comes, that at the Bema seat of Christ, earthly wreaths and trophies and newspaper clippings and Super Bowl rings will be long forgotten. Let's add to that Little League championships for this guy. They'll be no more important than brushing your teeth or buying a newspaper at the corner store. But what we do now for eternity, even the smallest of deeds, will count forever. It counts. It counts. What we do. So what we, you and I do with the worry struggle we have matters. What you and I do with the lust struggle we have matters. What we do or don't do with our gifts matters. Now here's the thing. I just want to clarify. I don't know this. I can't prove it from scripture. But based on what I do know about the, the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus comes back to claim his bride, the church, There'll be no tears and there'll be no sorrow in heaven. 
So if Blake has more rewards than me, I won't be jealous. You know why? Because it's all for God's glory. I'll be so pumped that God is glorified through Blake's life. Man, I don't know about you. When I see him face to face, I want rewards, not for my sake, but for his, for the glory of God. What we do with our lives echoes throughout eternity, and our rewards will be far richer than anything we can gather this side of heaven. If we have that perspective, then we don't give ourselves to secret sins, but we bring them out in the open because we know 10,000 years from now, the pain of getting that sin out in the open and dealing with it won't matter one iota. Not at all. Jesus wants us to be free, and in light of that, he wants us to live with eternity in front of us. Because when we live in it with eternity as our goal, our momentary troubles that we face today and tomorrow don't matter. Jonathan Edwards knew this. You know, we're here in part because of Jonathan Edwards. We stand, theologically speaking, on his shoulders. A great theologian and pastor uh, of the past At the tender age of 20, he wrote the following words in his diary. He was only 20 years old. Words that surely reflect his understanding of the certainty of his appearance one day in eternity before the Lord Jesus at his judgment seat. And he says this, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. Now, besides feeling dumb when I read this, because this guy was only 20 and writes way over my level of writing ability, and probably most of yours as well, I'm so humbled that it's at such a young age he had faith to believe Christ for these things. And he did these things that he resolved to do by God's grace. He says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God and by my own good profit and pleasure to do whatever I think to be my duty for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. I love this next one. Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved, to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolved, never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. Resolved, never to allow the least measure of any fretting or uneasiness at my father or mother. So he wanted to honor his father and mother. Resolved, that there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. And he resolved to go through these once a week to review them. And he did throughout his whole life. The question we must ask ourselves about the use of our time, the one that Jonathan Edwards asked, the one that David asked, in light of eternity is simple. Whatever we do, we must ask, what difference will this make 10,000 years from now? What difference will it make? Most of the things we worry about won't matter in three weeks or three months, let alone three years. We focus on the trivial and forget to pursue the eternal, but 10,000 times, 10,000 years from now, you and I will be glad we invested our life in Jesus Christ. You know, recently I read about the Mercedes-Benz car company. They ran some ads describing a brand new brake technology, 
And instead of keeping this brake technology to themselves, you'd be surprised because, you know, Mercedes doesn't have the, the reputation for being especially generous, but they released this technology to all the other car companies. And here's why they said they were motivated to do that. They said some things in life are too important not to share. As Christians, we've been given the best news in the entire world, and it's way too important not to share because people are speeding towards a life without Jesus, an eternity without Jesus Christ. I think that's an important reason to work through our insecurities and fears, is it not? 10,000 years from now, do you think any of us will regret sharing the gospel with those we share the gospel with? Never. May God help us to invest in the things that matter. Howard Hendricks, author and speaker and pastor, gives great advice regarding rewards. He says, only two things in this world are eternal, the word of God and people. It only makes sense to build your life around those things that will last forever. But we have to remember in all this as we've been going through this series, our second week now, it's not by our strength that we invest in those things that matter. If we just rely on our own strength, you might invest in the things that matter if you live 15 minutes away for seven and a half minutes of your commute home. That's about how long this little motivational speech, that's all it is if the Holy Spirit isn't moving through it, will last you and me. Remember in Psalm 147, verse 10, we've said we want to memorize this verse together through this series. It says, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. This series, again, that we're in the second weekend is called The Forgotten Disciplines. And it's about creating time and space in a season of the summer where we maybe have a little bit more time to let go of control and acknowledge that we walk with Jesus. We don't walk based on our own efforts. We let go of control. Like the psalmist says about God's character, he says what pleases God is not our strength and competence. What Jesus wants, what makes him giddy, is for us to find our delight in him, to actually enjoy spending time with him and serving him. To you future missionaries out there, that it wouldn't be a sacrifice, but it would be as if it was nothing to go to the ends of the earth for your savior, that it would be a joy. For those of us who are raising children, which is really easy, right guys, to raise kids, easiest thing you've ever done, right? That it wouldn't be some huge sacrifice we complain about, but it would be to the glory of God. For those of you who are students and it seems so mundane, you're going through the same thing day in and day out, and what am I really doing? I feel like a cog in a wheel helping OSU get rich or whatever other school, which is true, you are, but that you would see, no, this is to the glory of God. The people he's put me around, the opportunity that he's given to me, it's as if it was nothing to live these years for Jesus Christ. He's pleased and we place our hope in him and in his unfailing love. And when we give him our time, we experience unending joy. We're never going to regret giving him our time, are we? We're looking at five or maybe six, we haven't quite decided, but of these neglected disciplines. You know, prayer is something we talk about a lot. Uh, Bible study is something we talk about a lot, but these are some forgotten disciplines. Last week, Jordan talked about Sabbath rest. Today, we're talking about offering our time to God, not just the time in the Word, but every single second of every day. So let's dive into the specifics. As I decide how to spend my time today and tomorrow, I need more than just a list of behaviors from the Bible. 
I need way more than that. I, I'm not going to be able to keep those. I need God to change my taste buds, so to speak, so that I can taste his good, pleasing, and perfect will when I see it. I need him to change my spiritual taste buds. I need a new way of thinking, and I need one that doesn't come from me. It comes from someone else. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says who that someone else is. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when that phone call comes or when that opportunity comes uh, to serve, I need a new way of thinking. I need the mind of Christ. When some other choice comes up to do this or to do that, I need him to change my thinking, not just a list of behaviors. And that comes when we, we look to his face, we look towards his character in his word and talk to him about it through prayer. So this transformation uh, of mind takes on several different forms. And this is the meat of the talk tonight. For example, this mind of Christ is not lazy, but works hard alongside the Lord. Can I give all of you young people just a challenge? Learn to work hard. Do something you don't want to do for at least a year. Could be working at an ice cream shop. It could be working at a McDonald's. It could be delivering papers at 4.30 in the morning, but learn to work hard and be held accountable not to complain. It's so important to learn to work hard in Jesus' name. That's something that's being lost in our culture. And even as we approach middle age, guys like me, I'm far from, I've already approached middle age. I've landed and formed a beachhead and have built a neighborhood of like-minded people. Uh, but you, it's easy to get caught into comfort, ease, all of that. And forget, no, man, I want to keep working hard for the Lord. So it says in Proverbs 6, verse 10, it warns us of laziness. And there are many such verses like this, particularly in the Proverbs. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. We all know laziness is bad for us, don't we? Some of the most depressed people ever, it, oftentimes depression is a chemical issue. It's just genetic. But sometimes depression comes because we choose laziness. Laziness and depression go together like a junkyard and rust. Okay, they are always together. The reason is that we weren't created to be lazy. We weren't created to be passive. We were created to enthusiastically come alongside God and create stuff. And out of the order and chaos that sin has created, we were made by God to walk alongside God in the business world, in the family, in the neighborhood, in school, and bring order to the chaos Bring purpose to the mundane and bring the gospel throughout that. To work alongside dad in what sin has stolen. We are according to Colossians 3, verse 23. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. That's a big call. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Once again, we see this reward language for, re related to this side of eternity on earth. It says the Lord is our ultimate boss. So if your job is sucking the life out of you, remember God's your boss. You work for him. 
When you and I are tempted to be lazy because we think that we're undervalued or underpaid or we're not given the appropriate break or vacation, we remember God is our boss. We work for him. When we work this way, we worship our creator. I mean, work is what we do for a large portion of our life. So that means that work is our primary opportunity to worship. So that's where the greatest temptation will be to complain in our work. You want to get somebody talking who you don't know? What's a great conversational piece? Get them talking about what they hate about their job. Right? Maybe you have friends that don't complain about the job, but people I talk to, man, they want to complain about the people they work with, what they do, how their boss is sucking the life out of them, whatever. Okay, that, that's demonic. That's demonic. We're to worship the Lord through our work. God sovereignly put us in this. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard to get out of situations that don't fit us, but why we're there, not to complain, but to work hard for our king. Next up here, the mind of Christ spends time building up the body. By the body, I mean the church. That's how the Bible describes those who love, serve, and worship Jesus. Christ is the head. We are his body. We work out his will on planet earth. We've talked about this before. Through heaven's embassy called the church on earth, we are his hands and feet carrying out his will. Uh, So we spend time invested in that in which he died and rose from the dead for See 1 John 3, verse 17. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So we're to spend our time and resources on those that God loves, especially those in our local church. It's not just a meeting. It's a life where we're invested. We're laying down our lives for one another. We're also warned in Hebrews 10, verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we're each other's coaches, encouraging one another towards love and good deeds. That can look like calling out someone's gift, right? That can look like me saying, man, Amanda, you have a tremendous gift of hospitality, and you're an artist. You should use that wherever you go. How could you use that during the... She's already doing that, by the way, but how could you use your artistic gifts and your, your gift of hospitality to help people grow closer to Jesus? That, that's what that means, to spur one another on, because sometimes we don't see our own gifting, do we? That should be a regular part of our conversations in home groups and when we get together, spurring one another on. It also says here that some are in the habit of neglecting the regular meeting together of the saints. Notice it doesn't say deep, dark sin. Like, oh, you didn't go to church or home group. You know, it's, it's not like that. It says some are in the habit. It's a habit, isn't it? I mean, no one who regularly skips church and or home group says, you know what? I think for the next six months, I'm only going to go to church and home group three times. Doesn't that sound good, honey? Let's do that. You know, it doesn't. It becomes a habit. So we're not to neglect the regular habit of meeting together. Habit means at times what? Are we always going to feel like doing it? You don't come to church with pom-poms? You don't throw in candy at me, which would be awesome, by the way, but I like chocolate, none of the hard candy stuff. I want good stuff, none of the cheap stuff, all right? Don't be throwing Werther's Originals up here, Hershey's, that kind of stuff. 
all right? But yeah, I mean, that's not how, sometimes we do it out of habit. It's not necessarily good, but it's a reality. There are gonna be times when we, let me ask you, why is it important to develop the habit of regularly meeting together with the saints? To start with, not, not just this, but to start with regularly attending worship and home group. Why? Why is it so important? What's that? Encouragement. We need encouragement. That's exactly right. How many times have we gone and we didn't really feel like going and we go and we're like, man, the Lord did something there. What's that? Keeps our faith strong. Exactly. We hear the word. The Holy Spirit's hungry to hear the word. The Holy Spirit's hungry to be around the saints. He's hungry to hear God glorified in song and that feeds us. What else? Maintaining relationships. You know, all too often I hear people say, man, Chris, I can't get connected at Awaken. Or back when I was at Linworth, at Linworth, I can't get connected. You know, almost every time is those people had, they had fallen into the habit of not meeting regularly with the saints. And they felt like, well, why aren't I as connected as this person over here? Well, because they're spending 15 hours a week with these people. These relationships, and they've been doing it for 10 years. You know, there's no substitute for that. Any others? Yeah, good job. You must be a pro. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, there is no pro Christian, by the way. We're all equal before Christ, even if we get paid. Uh, But exactly, we get an opportunity to serve. We're here not just to take, but we're here to serve, to lay our lives down just as Christ did for the church. And that ministers to us, right, when we do that. Any more? You guys might have covered them all. I can't think of any others. Yes, to love and to be loved. I don't know how many times I have been really suffering. I think of one time in particular, I was really going through it. And a brother, an older brother, years and years ago, came up to me. It was, one of the, it was the hardest season of my entire life. All he did is give me a hug. And man, I just melted. Just melted. It was just another brother acknowledging, I know you're suffering. I'm not going to try to give you any advice. I just want you to know I'm there. Right? To be loved. Uh, Good, good answers, guys. Our investment in one another is summed up well by Christ in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let me tell you how we will see uh, infinitely more people come to know Christ in the U.S. than we ever have in the history of this country if we walk out the one another verses in the New Testament, if we take those seriously, there are dozens and they require a lot of us. They're impossible for us to do without the grace of Christ. We're to encourage one another, confess our sins to one another, lay down our lives for one another, serve one another. We're to give to each other even financially when we're in need. We're to pray for one another. We're to love one another. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It requires much, much more than sitting in a seat on Sunday and Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, whenever your home group meets. And we all have room to grow in this area. We all do. You know, we tend to neglect this this discipline of fellowship. And it seems like the one that's kind of in the, the rear that we can forget about, but it's so important. It's so Many of you are struggling with discouragement because you're not in the habit of meeting with other saints. So... 
our witness to a lost world is dependent on our love for those inside the church. It's like a foundation to a house. The home can't be safely opened for a party without a safe foundation. So it is with God's people. We create a foundation through our love and service to one another where many can come in and find Jesus. But it's our love for one another that creates that opportunity. Last but not least, we're to honor the Lord with our time by sharing the mind of Christ through devotion to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Matthew 28, verse 18, the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he says, I'm giving this to you. So doesn't it make sense that the enemy would try to make us afraid of sharing our faith so that we neglect, belittle, and cheapen this power of Jesus Christ that's been invested in us? Of course we're going to be tempted to fear. And Nick spoke so well to that during worship that, that fear can be such a controlling thing. But for, uh, for us as Christians, the Bible says we no longer have a spirit of fear. Or some translation says, say, timidity. But we have a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. We have the ability to build a family tree of followers of Jesus who've been made new through spiritual rebirth, not by our strength, but, by, but through his. That's why fellowship is so important. As we get together with one another with the sole purpose of making much of Jesus, he'll turn our eyes outward. He will. It'll happen. And then the great commandment in Mark 12, verse 28, it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answer, Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now check this out. It says first, hear, O Israel, okay, which we're grafted into Israel as ones who have been saved by Christ. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it starts with acknowledging there is no other God. There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. So you start there. The Lord is one. Then next, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. And then out of that comes loving our neighbor as ourselves. So we love the Lord with all of our minds. That is all of our intellect. You know, sometimes we... we I shouldn't say sometimes, we need to work hard intellectually to study God's word. And we, we, stu- we, we know God, we, we love him with all of our heart. That is our personality, all that makes up me. So my emotions, my inclinations, everything, I worship him with all my heart and I worship him with all my strength. In other words, it's gonna be hard. There's gonna be some late nights serving God's people on the lost. There's gonna be maybe some meals missed There's going to be schedules that are thrown off. Jesus was one who ministered in the margins. He ministered through interruption. Don't we see that in Scripture? More often than not, Jesus is interrupted. He's going this way, and then he's interrupted with the woman, the issue of bleeding. he's, He's going this way, and he's interrupted with the blind man who's seeking to be healed. You know, we have to give up our own agendas. Uh, So we give our time to others. 
We give, we give away our lives in Jesus' name to discover true life. So now I want to bring all this quickly here into real practical terms because we don't want to get together just for another Christian meeting. All right, that's what makes our faith dry as a bone and we don't see any miracles happen because we're not taking steps. I'm going to call us now, me included, to take a step. All right, so we're not wasting our time here. And we can do so by, a quote Phil Krause here, this is his favorite statement in the whole world, to live life on purpose. If you know Phil, you'll slap him, you know, after a couple years whenever he says that because he says it so often. I've slapped him often. We've gone down to the mat, gotten into some nasty fights. No, I'm just, we never have him. I'm kidding. But Ephesians 5.10 says that we're to find out what pleases the Lord and then do it. And God gives us a picture of what his will is in his word. Remember, we've said it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery, and we've talked about what his will is in terms of time already tonight. To work hard as if working for the Lord. If you're wondering, what does God want me to do? Where does he want me to go? Well, work hard tomorrow morning in Jesus' name. Avoid laziness. Spend time investing in God's people, loving them, spending time with them, serving them. You want to know what God's will is? Work hard at your job in Jesus' name and in all that you do, and then get together with Christians and love their socks off and try to outdo them in, in, in loving them. Love them more than they love you. Make it like a fun little competition. Uh, and give yourself to the great commission and the great commandment. If we don't do these things, then the will of God's always going to be this kind of surreal, ultra-spiritual thing that's kind of out there. No, those three things. We start with that, and everything else will come in clarity. So I want to make some personal goals here. Otherwise, again, we're just spinning our wheels. We want to come together, hear his word, and we want to be doers of his word. So here's our opportunity to be doers, okay? Now, a goal is not a good intention. A goal is not to read the Bible more. Did you know that? A goal is not to spend more time with believers, nor is it to share the gospel more. These are mere intentions, and we'll never do them. My goal is just to read the Bible more. My goal is to read the Bible more. I'm never going to do it. Intentions are dangerous without goals because they fuel procrastination. If I say I want to get in the word more or share my faith more or whatever, but fail to shape out when I'm going to do it, who's going to help me, and so on, then nothing will happen. And I've been there a million times, I know from experience, and so do you. Good intentions don't do anything. They simply continuously intend to do stuff. Good intentions do little more than relieve guilt. It makes me feel like for one more day I've done something when really I've only intended to do something. Good intentions talk of the future but do nothing today. Good intentions are filled with I'm gonna's or I should'ves, and I'm a pro at the I'm gonna's and I'm should'ves. When we have good intentions without real goals, we're accountable to no one. And when our passions flee, so do our efforts. Good intentions promise much, require nothing, and accomplish very little. They are the doorway to procrastination and a wasted life. I'm going to say that again. Good intentions promise much, require nothing, and accomplish very little. They are the doorway to procrastination and a wasted life. So I want to ask you to get out your phones or something to take notes on here and write this question down. What one aspect of giving my time to God would make the biggest difference in my life over the next 30 days? What one aspect of giving my time to God would make the biggest difference in my life over the next 30 days? Some of us see planning as unspiritual. For those of you who have read the Bible, did Nehemiah do a lot of planning when he built the wall? Did he? He did a boatload of planning, of delegation, of getting people together around their portion of the wall that was 
that they were interested in, that they were relying on for protection and provision, and he got them working, and they had a plan. Planning is from God. He's a God of order. Every cell in our bodies, we still don't even understand one one-hundredth of God's creation and how he works because of the level of detail and planning that he's committed to. So what one aspect of giving my time to God would make the biggest difference in my life over the next 30 days? It could be sharing your faith, serving someone in particular, attending home group or service regularly. But here's the kick. We have to dig down and make it specific or it's just a good intention. So here's the guts of a goal. Write down this as well. What is God asking me to do? I get together with a group regularly where this is all we ask each other. What's God asking me to do? How will I do it? When will I do it? And who will help me? What's my accountability? I'm telling you, you do that with your goals. You will grow. Let's say you've been following Jesus for 25 years. You'll grow more in one year than you have the previous 25. If you just simply, it's not like there's anything magical here. This is not leadership mumbo jumbo speak. This is leaning into one of God's primary graces he gives to the church. And you know what that is? One another. When I open my heart to another believer and say, I need your help to walk this out because I know my passions will wane. I have good intentions, but I won't follow through. I won't grow when I don't want to, which is most of the time, if I don't have help. But if I have you praying for me, if I have you using your spiritual gifts to fan my goals into flame, then we're going to set this world on fire for Jesus Christ. So, for instance, if I know God is asking me to honor him by investing more time in God's people, that is, fellowship with other believers, I might answer these questions to form a goal this way. Number one, what's God asking me to do? To be committed to loving God's people. Number two, how will I do it? I'll attend home group and church every week unless I'm sick or out of town. Again, that's goal one. I mean, I'll continue on in that, but, but that, that might be my first goal to start. When will I do it? I'll start doing it this week. Who will hold me accountable? So who will help me? I'll share this goal with Jordan McWhorter, Jonathan Kimball, and Phil Krause. I'll schedule a text to go out once a week to these men for the next three months, requesting they check in on me if I miss. Do you see the difference between goal and intention? Intention says I can do it. I can do it. I'm just going to rely on the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help me do it. No, you won't rely on the Holy Spirit. You'll rely on the Holy Spirit for this week, and then next week, I'll be back in the flesh. That's how we all are. That's how Israel was. That's how God's people are. That's why, one of the reasons why the church in America is so weak, because we don't take these one another verses seriously, and this is a way to do just that. But if I say, hey, I don't trust myself. I want to honor Jesus with my life. I want to live life on purpose, but I know I'll waste it if I don't rely on this tremendous gold mine called the church, God's people. So if we accept this 30-day challenge, it will change our lives. Not if we do it just out of some kind of rote commitment or, hey, Pastor Chris told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. But if we do it because we feel like the Holy Spirit is moving us to do it, it's an expression of humility saying that we need other believers to help us, then he'll grow us. We'll see miracles. He'll change our taste buds to where we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind and be able to see what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is more clearly because he loves humility. The Holy Spirit is attracted to humility like bees to honey. And we go to other believers and say, hey, help me walk this out. 
for the next 30, 60, or 90 days. So let's do it together. I want to ask you to take some time to write these things down, this goal down, and uh, the following questions. What's God asking me to do? How will I do it? When will I do it? And who will hold me accountable? Go ahead and take some time with the Lord to write those things down as uh, the worship team member. I guess we don't have a team. The worship team member comes up here.